Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's so delicious to be all together here now in person in the clouds endo our sister sangas of madison england and minnesota and arkansas in a sense we've all come from far away right we've had the the dukkha of separation time and distance both um, and we've had a lot of losses from everything but the pandemic which was especially egregious because it kept us from coming together which is our strength as a species to come together support each other bond in times of disaster in times of crisis um, and we were prevented from doing that and we've had dealt with a lot of death and huge amount of danger it just in connecting it's only connecting as human beings sitting together, having a meal, or sitting in a theater. <clears throat> We've lost some members, some Sangha members. And of course, we have the difficult challenge of teachers moving and Sangha members moving. So for me, it's kind of astonishing that we have this continuity. And that it's a continuity of care and community and practice. So it's marvelous to be here with you and to see how even um, the crisis of the pandemic brought us closer to the people that we have meeting with us online now. And so it's created these larger community bonds that we could never have predicted, right? In our little tiny Zendo here in Austin, Texas. So the second thing I want to express is my immense gratitude uh, my gratitude for first of all our drama teachers todd and maury and joel um, <coughs> for their talks for their practice discussion offerings for their support for our programming and our decision making for daily zazen and service and their ongoing care for everyone in the community um, this is not a paid position really you know it's a tiny little bit of stipend but it's microscopic compared to the offerings that people are making out of the greatness of their hearts and um, i also feel a deep gratitude for the councils and for people who don't know and i'll explain a little bit more about this a little bit later the councils are our core group of experienced song members who are dedicated to the community and who are who meet in small groups councils um, for training, for study, for peer group support, and for continuity here because we don't have priests, we don't have residents. It's kind of a miracle that the practice is, continues to be scaffolded in this way because we have experienced people who are willing to serve in this way. They also are kind of a brain trust, which means we get multiple perspectives on any decisions that we're trying to make or any programming that we're trying to develop. And we get uh, wiser decisions because of that brain trust. 
because it also it helps us understand the impact of something we're deciding to do or something we have done on people you know that we might not even recognize have been impacted so they also do engage in the work of maintaining this place um, taking care of many aspects of responsibilities here um, and of maintaining our community so immense gratitude for them i have great gratitude for our board and our board has faced terrific challenges um, it's it's you know kind of natural for a board to be uh, uh, actively involved in developing policies and bylaws insurance things like that administrative things that most people don't even want to think about um, our financial well-being They're, they monitor that and they advise us around all of those issues um, our space needs, so uh, they're, they are always um, working on anticipating what our space needs might be and how we might meet them. And then, um, you know, there have been some real challenges with the transitions, first of all, to this generosity initiative, which took an immense amount of work on the part of the board. It was just a, such a challenging shift from what we were doing, charging for intensives, charging for classes. But it has really, I think, accomplished a lot in terms of how we can support our, uh, our intention to, for a more diverse community and for supporting people who have financial challenges. So um, then they also, the board also had to deal with the teachers moving and how that all gets managed from the board perspective. And they also have to support our very unusual organizational structure which is unlike anything most people who serve on boards have had to really address. <clears throat> so their wisdom and their understanding of the Apamata way of doing things is absolutely crucial uh, because if we had a bunch of people coming in and didn't understand how Apamata functions, how we work, our relational practice, it would be very difficult um, to try and explain it, try and, try and manage that. Um, people may not know that their representatives from each council on our board so that there's constant communication between the councils and the board and the teachers it's ongoing but most of all i have tremendous tremendous gratitude for new sangha members um, keeping the faith and practice um, in abamata and in each other and in the dharma over this very difficult time and the continuity that we experience when we sit together and just like we never left just like we never, we were never apart. Um, and the ways that we've come to share our lives with each other and to support each other, and then our shared assumptions, which um, I think for some, some people are beginning with us, they're new to us, so they're learning about these shared assumptions that ground our practice. Um, that uh, this aspiration for waking up and growing up together uh, the assumptions that everyone here is operating in good faith, that nobody has malign intentions, there's nobody you don't trust quite what their, their intentions are. Um, the assumptions that, um, uh, that our practice is turning toward, so rather than trying to avoid or escape difficulty, challenges, upsets, problems, circumstances, uh, our annoyances with each other, our relationality, all these things are viewed as our training. So when we view them as training, instead of being things that are in the way, they actually become the source of our deepening our spiritual practice together. 
So for that, I'm immensely grateful to have that be the, the foundation of how we are with each other. So, but we're not just a group of people who come together and uh, kind of sit facing the wall. We're, um, we have this incredible bedrock foundation in the Dharma and these profound teachings, which actually address loss and suffering <clears throat> and living in peace together ethically and our awakening process and our vow for the liberation of all beings. These are all our sort of foundational understandings from the Dharma, the four truths, that are, the noble truths that are known by the awakened ones, um, dependent origination, all that is arising together is dependent on everything else. The precepts, which is really how to live together in harmony, uh, in wisdom and compassion and ethically. And I think this is really was the Buddhist teachings on how to have a civilized society. They weren't there like self-improvement programs. Um, they are commandments, but they're really how do we live together in a way that we can trust each other, in a way that we can mutually support each other, in a way that we can be in harmony. And the paramitas, which are practices of perfecting um, generosity and morality and tolerance and patience and vigor um, and uh, concentration and wisdom, these are things that we can turn toward uh, in our, on our path and recognize these are supporting our community is this deep, deep, deep foundation. So it's something that many, many communities lack is that foundation in the um, teachings of the Buddha or in any deep teachings like that. But also the Dharma also means life as it is. So all of us are in the meantime uh, immersed in circumstances that are historical, that are cultural, that are personal, and that are community-based. These are the circumstances we meet. And so this is a kind of encounter. Uh, the encounter is, you know, partly with our conditioning, which inevitably comes up, right? Our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations in the face of these circumstances. Um, our encounter then becomes a kind of adventure in teaching and training um, instead of the problems we have to solve. So this is a very different orientation, I think, um, to life as it is. We're mostly, you know, we're trying to make it comfortable for ourselves, safe for ourselves, easy for ourselves, you know, and we view any interruption in that as some sort of an insult, right? This traffic, um, this person sitting next to me who's breathing too much, you know, like all of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything that it is, right? So, <laughs> so we have a kind of, um, ecosystem that we're caring for it involves you know um, this uh, physical place we're in the material conditions of that it involves the social structures we've created the social architectures the councils the board you know teachers um, it involves uh, a different way of seeing and understanding our community so most of us start out in a community and, and we're like I'm not a joiner, so like I'll, I'll hang out here, but I'm not actually going to actually join. But that's okay, you know. I can just hang out here for a while. So until I get better, you know, um, until I fix myself, and then then I'm good to go. Um, so most of us start, I kind of start out a little bit like that, you know, practicing for ourselves, practicing for our own well-being, and uh, and maybe to be a little bit better person, 
not so crappy, you know, not so easily annoyed. So, but pretty soon it becomes apparent, I think, if you hang out here for a while, um, that this ecosystem is actually uh, a network of processes and relationships that are constantly flowing, that are dynamic, that are constantly changing. And that in itself is kind of interesting. Um, that we're, uh, we're waking up and meeting in our meeting, as Flint and I have always said. Um, but that relationality is also supported here with some specific kinds of training. Um, and the training kinds of training that we've used, for example, have been right use of power, um, internal family systems, ECOMI, appreciative inquiry, spiral dynamics, um, and trainings in diversity and equity. So that uh, provides a, a kind of scaffold for the, our relationships and deepens our understandings of how to make those relationships better. Um, and we have also, Flint and I anyway, built into much of what we do you know, some kind of creative interactive exercises that actually put people in interaction with each other in small groups with a particular kind of a focus, like a walk and talk um, or like a shared meditation. Um, so the understanding that this is a network of relationships is very, very important to really understanding what Apamata is all about. And I wanna address in some depth anyway, um, the kind of unique uh, structure that this particular ecosystem has. Uh, let's see if I can do this. Um, and this part of it I've actually written because I had some thoughts about it. Um, so, so I wanted to be clear and I didn't want to just like mess around. So, <laughs> so I have been hearing that there is some confusion about how Automata is organized and managed. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about that and then maybe it'll give you a little uh, people who are uh, relatively new or people who have forgotten uh, a reminder. Um, <clears throat> so at Automata, we have a unique and practical system for good governance. It is, of course, not a perfect system, but it's generally conducive to organizing ourselves to engage with each other and act with wisdom and compassion and clarity. It might help to review some other systems so that you can see uh, a little bit better how our Apamata ways are different. So many people have experienced or practiced, or at least seen on TV, the traditional Japanese style Zen centers. <clears throat> and this is also true of many other religions. Um, the system is organized in a strict hierarchy. Participants may change, but the temple roles and their relationships to each other, those are well-defined and strictly maintained. There's a system of ranks as well as roles. <clears throat> this gives the institution its enduring structure as a container for the teachings which are closely guarded and protected in this way. So if you're gonna hand something down, generation to generation, the first impulse is to create a structure, and within that structure, the teachings can be conveyed. And that structure is a social architecture. So while this structure provides some stability and consistency and continuity, it's not very adaptive to changing circumstances, changing cultures, languages, gender, or demographics. Basically, participants must fit themselves into the structure 
the structure has limited capacity to evolve and adapt. In Zen centers, rank is conveyed by first Jukai precept ceremonies, then priest ordination, Dharma transmission, and mountain seat ceremonies that establish an habit. So that's rank <coughs> order. <clears throat> in the midst of which there are roles like Eno and Tenzo and Kokyo that, uh, that people inhabit, you know, different people inhabit. An ordinary participant does not have a voice in how things run in such a system. <clears throat> You're basically told, shut up and sit down. Just shut up and sit down and practice. As ranks create power differentials, the potential for abuse of power is great. Almost irresistible. Many tradi traditional religious institutions have faced and continue to face the enormous damage caused to the community by such abuses. Baked into the power structure of the institution. I've done a fair amount of consulting with some of those systems. On the other hand, we in the West tend to favor more democratic social structures, and we're accustomed to having a voice in the way things function in Zen centers as they are emerging in the West. Participants expect that their preferences will be addressed, their opinions will be valued, their individual needs will be met. <laughs> Furthermore, they have a strong faith in majority rule. So if a significant number of Sangha members feel strongly that something should be done or changed or addressed, the belief is that the Sangha should follow. This is the second ditch for religious organizations. <clears throat> holding to naive democratic beliefs. The truth is that it is not uncommon for a majority, even a supermajority of people to have wrong views, wrong actions, wrong speech. We have seen this countless times in the history of our own nation. People are easily persuaded by fear, mistrust, anxiety, doubt, even loneliness to join together under very wrong views, to act out of anger and cruelty and to create divisions in the society. Alternative views are suppressed, ignored, or even punished. Even the smallest informal sanghas can develop such pathologies. So at Apamata, Flint and I have carefully reflected on the limitations of both of these standard social architectures for religious communities. We have discussed and continue to discuss Apamata's evolution and architecture. We have viewed this evolution not as some kind of blueprint or vision, but as our care of an organic ecosystem, growing naturally from our relationships, the teachings of the Buddha and our lineage, contemporary conditions, sciences, inquiry, artistic expression, and emerging wisdom. Our development of the Sangha's social architecture has evolved over time, but it is stable, sustainable, and most of all wise and compassionate. It's established on the deep foundation of the Buddha's teachings. We've amplified those teachings with contemporary training so that, for example, the Buddha's precepts are complemented by parallel training and right use of power. This provides the Sangha with a necessary moral compass and a commitment to ethical conduct. Right use of power gives us the skills, approaches, concepts, and even language for open discussions about power dynamics in the Sangha and beyond. The practical lived experience of the precepts in contemporary community. Understandable so far? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. We made a conscious decision not to ordain priests in the Apamanga Sangha, even though both Flint and I had been ordained as priests, which enabled us to see what are the benefits and what are the shortcomings of that particular institutional model. We've observed how in other sanghas, this creates a division in the community between those who are ordained or on the ordination path and those who are not, for whatever reason. Many sangha members not on the ordination path in those places have described their feelings of being less than, less committed, less serious, less devoted to the dharma or the sangha. And often they feel they are viewed that way by the leadership of the sangha and other community members. And that is a fact. The priests are seen, even by themselves, as a kind of spiritual aristocracy, despite the fact that their role is primarily serving the community. Still, we want to honor the commitment and dedication of sincere and experienced students who want to support the community in their hearts and in their practice. Rather than create a rank such as priest, we have evolved the councils, where those folks committed to the Sangha can have peer support in small ongoing groups that meet each week, learning together, deepening in their practice, providing insights into the community and its needs, and also serving as a brain trust for the teachers on the board. They also have responsibility for some aspect of the community's functioning. In this way, the functions of a priest are distributed, while council members are also gaining insight into how the sangha is managed. There's not an elite of favorites of the teacher, but rather a wide-ranging and distributed <clears throat> care for the Sangha. In fact, our commitment is to create a new council when we have six or seven people who have that consistency in practice to meet the criteria that we have put up on the website, um, and who have precepts training, training and roles, ongoing work with a teacher and dedication to helping build the community. Now, this is a pretty big time commitment. But we wanted to make sure that people who had that, that sense, that aspiration in their hearts, had peers, the people that they could grow together with over time. And that's why the councils stay pretty much, you know, pretty much the same people over time. So consequently, teachers consult regularly with councils in the process of making decisions that will affect the whole community. That's a brain trust. <clears throat> the wisdom of experience, training, deep practice, and dedicated commitment to the Sangha is a bottom-up evolution, not a top-down. So the most experienced, practiced, and wise can ultimately grow into the Dharma teacher function the appropriate seat of authority and decision-making for the Sangha because of their deep investment in the Sangha, not because of some external credentials, not because of some favorites of the teacher. Right. I hope this is understandable. Is this clear? Um, yes. Meanwhile, the board also functions to support wise governance, fiscal responsibilities, as I said, and our long-term ongoing visions for the health and welfare of the Sangha. This is the topic of our conversations with the board. Some decisions are the responsibility of the board. So talk about decision-making and how decision, some decisions are the natural function of the board. Should we change insurance companies? The whole Sangha doesn't need to weigh in on that and probably doesn't want to. 
Um, so <clears throat> others are the responsibility of the Dharma teachers. Should we add a hospice program? Well, let's find out. Yeah, we will consult with the councils. How does this get staffed? We consult with the board. How does this get funded? Um, and often, you know, um, these uh, um, the consultations with the sangha as a whole. If it's something that we think the whole sangha can benefit from discussing together, <clears throat> those decisions are not based on fiat, nor on majority rule, but on wisdom and compassion and ethics rule. That's how we do it. So the experience of people who have been with us for a long, long time gives wisdom, right? And they're, uh, they're steeping and marinating in the teachings. So this is admittedly a novel organizational structure. Um, everywhere I go and talk to people in other sanghas, they're a little bit wistful about it because they can't really change the structure that they've determined. They can, but in some places like San Francisco Zen Center, it's not going to be possible. That institution is established, right? <clears throat> Nevertheless, this novel organizational structure has served Apamata extremely well for 15 years. A couple of people have expressed their opinion that Apamata should seek a priest to lead the Sangha. This is where I want to put that rumor to rest. This should never happen, and I would strongly oppose such a move. Our Dharma teachers have far, far more training and years of experience, both with the Dharma and in contemporary psychology and relational Zen, in the way we teach it at Apamana than any priest. They are better prepared to lead the Sangha than even most Dharma-transmitted teachers, I, at least the ones I've observed in my consulting uh, with many other Sangha, many, many of whose leaders have had no practice in teaching, administration, working with a board, understanding finances, or other administrative functions necessary to the healthy function of an independent sangha. They've been monastics in a monastery. They've had functions within that monastery, but in terms of understanding the overall whole, typically no. Because of our distributed architecture, fortunately, no one person has to know about all of these things, right? And therefore, no one person needs to carry the burden of it alone, as is the case in many other sanghas. So I was at a conference of uh, American Zen Teachers Association, <clears throat> 21 Zen teachers in a big circle talking about the number one issue that they had, which was succession. As they're aging out, what's going to happen to their sanghas? They have absolutely no plan. No plan. <clears throat> this was astonishing. However, this distributed function of experience and authority does have its challenges, many of which you've picked up on, no doubt. Although everyone's view is valued, there is still a clear process for making decisions that does not rest on opinion, assertiveness of one view, argument, voting, or simple fiat. No teacher or board member would want to make decisions in a vacuum without consultation with councils, or often more generally the Sangha. That said, the decisions rest with the people who have the authority of leadership, right, our teachers. And ultimately, the decision must be made based on wisdom, experience, and care for the community and the larger horizon of view, right? Um, <clears throat> even if that decision is widely unpopular, because Abamata has the extraordinary benefit 
of two senior teachers and three fully entrusted Dharma teachers at present, and several more on the entrustment path, no one teacher can simply exert his or her will. It is always an ongoing consultation with peers. The sanghas that get in trouble are sanghas where the teachers have no peer support. It's always a dangerous situation. This is why our associations are valuable, of course, um, but people oftentimes don't make use of them. Uh, so, this is a very valuable corrective for misguided views or people who might be starting to go off the rails, right? They have peers at their own level, and it's a, it's a very big challenge. Um, okay, most importantly, the story of Apamata is an ongoing narrative co-authored by everyone in the Sangha. So far, it's a story of major challenges overcome, difficult situations weathered, and strong relationships of trust and mutual respect created. It's an improbable story. It's very improbable. Given the differences in any group of people with their individual perspectives, conditioning, past experience, and needs and preferences. But it is working. Our challenge is to, is to sustain and co-create the conditions for human flourishing. Together, as circumstances change and new situations present new challenges. The pandemic was one immense challenge we have successfully met. The relocation of two senior teachers is another that is still evolving. I would never have made such a decision to move without absolute confidence in the foundations, knowledge, ethical grounding, preparation, skills, wisdom, and care of our wonderful Dharma teachers, our council members, our board, and our wonderful Sangha. I just wouldn't have done that. I felt really, really confident that we were going to be able to continue building and growing together. So furthermore, we are members of the Lay Zen Teachers Association, a large organization of contemporary sanghas similar to our own, not priest-run. We can draw on their collective experience and shared wisdom, seek advice for unusual situations, or ask questions of others who share our values and our view about our sangha. <clears throat> and we, in turn, are a resource for other sanghas, working out how to support and cultivate contemporary Zen communities. Now, everyone who's a member of this organization is not a self-anointed teacher. They are people who have been officially authorized to teach, even though they have not been ordained as priests. Okay. I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, who can say where this all began, you know? <laughs> With two children who each thousands of miles apart found joy and solitude <coughs> and Was lying in the grass lost in the cosmos of a star-spangled night sky? with the shudder of a teenager, realizing that someday she will die, that everyone she loves, everyone alive will die. Maybe with the eager curiosity that landed a new freshman in the University of Iowa's renowned comparative religions class, where she was struck by the lightning bolt of three pillars of Zen. But I think this whole journey here really began years later for me when I met Joko. So the story of Abamata is both a personal one and a collective one. The stories of everyone who's joining us, no matter how briefly, on this path of waking up and growing up together. It cannot be understood apart from the extraordinary spiritual partner, partnership and creative synergy of Flint and me. That partnership really deserves a book of its own. 
maybe someday. In any event, it will be woven throughout the current work project because it necessarily needs to. Because it's safe to say neither of us could have envisioned, created, and developed up on our own. <coughs> when I told Joko about the emerging spiritual partnership between Flint and me, she said that life looks for a channel. And when two people come together, that channel becomes much larger, not merely double, but far greater than that. She spread her hands like this. <coughs> now just imagine the vast, boundless channel for life that is created by a group of people, a whole sangha, coming together. The power of such a shared aspiration grounded in the Buddha's foundational teachings and growing in wisdom and compassion through mutual care cannot possibly be comprehended. It is literally the living expression of the robe of liberation, the boundless field of benefaction in our daily robe chant. So that's our structure. And, you know, ecosystems are a set of processes. And I was talking about this earlier with the, um, in the little mini retreat, it's about flow, right? It's about the flow, input, output, and movement through of information, um, which means communication, decisions, state of the system, and needs, right? Um, energy, care, resources, and uh, activity. You know, so this flow of activity, because this flow of activity continues, because the flow of morning daily meditation continues, the ecosystem is healthy, right? So um, it's also the case that living ecosystems are always learning and adapting to life circumstances and uh, in uh, Claire Gray's terms, by the encounter between our biopsychosocial potential and capacities and life circumstances. So that's how we adapt and learn and grow. So we're a householder sangha. We're not a sangha of residents or monks or monastics. That means everyone, everyone, including the teachers, council members, board and sangha members, has a whole life. We're not Zen monastics. We're not playing at some escapist fantasy. We have families, jobs, friends, hobbies, travel, illness, and everything this life holds for us. Apamana can only work if we appreciate whatever anyone can offer in support of our shared community. We have survived a global pandemic, the moving away of our senior teachers and some of our most experienced Sangha members, and even huge changes to our city. Apamata is resilient and resourceful and enduring. Still, it could be destroyed through carping and criticism over petty annoyances and preferences, through resentments, through gossip, through mistrust of each other, failure to appreciate that we are all acting in good faith. However, I have absolute confidence in our ability to draw on our stores of goodwill, our practice of turning toward difficulty, and the skills we've taught for feedback and repair. We can draw on the wisdom of the teachers and the Dharma, the moral compass of the precepts, and the pure delight of practicing together. Consider the alternative. 
It's chilling to imagine what the world would be like without this beacon of connection, of light, and mutual care. It's worth our time and effort, I feel, to nourish and support it and each other. Don't break it, don't abuse it, don't corrupt it. As it says in the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, which you can find in our chant book, the Dharma of thusness is intimately transmitted by Buddhas and ancestors. Now you have it. Preserve it well. So, our succession plan. It's not a perfect plan, but it's a pretty good plan. And it's grounded in our principles. So, a typical path is people start sitting with us. They become engaged. They start to fall in love with the community. Maybe starts to fall in love with them. They begin to get a little bit more serious. They take the precepts, um, study the precepts over a precepts program. Uh, and then committed practitioners uh, may decide that they want to commit to a council. They join with the council members uh, and they meet over time, get deep into their practice and their training. They learn together, they train together, they study together, and they manage some of the responsibilities of taking care of this place and the Sangha. Then for practice periods, councils gather to discuss and make recommendations for head students. Head students give Dharma talks, teach a class, meet with Sangha members one-on-one -on -one for tea, and act generally as a friend to the Sangha. They participate in head student entering and exiting ceremonies, and they stand in for the teacher when a teacher is not present. This is a tiny taste of teaching, right? All the different kinds of responsibilities a teacher will have. So through this process, senior teachers, councils, and the Sangha come to know them really well. If they are drawn to a teaching path, they may become Zen mentors and begin offering short practice discussions with Sangha members. <coughs> Again, more experienced teaching. This teaching path is not only a public process where everyone in the Sangha has an opportunity to get to know someone, see how they conduct themselves in roles, in teaching, in one-on-one -on -one meeting, handling mistakes, in ceremonies, in day-to-day -day practice. It is also a semi-private practice through participation, feedback, and discussion in councils. And finally, it is a private practice between a student and their Dharma teacher. This process of discernment training and experience provides a way for teachers, councils, and the Sangha, as well as an individual, to begin the process of training for entrustment. In this way, entrusted teachers have literally earned the trust of the senior teachers, their peers on councils, and the Sangha as a whole. Each one is unique. Each one has a particular mix of study, practice, service, training, and practical knowledge generously shared with Apamana. They are steeped in the Dharma, and in particular, the Apamana way. This is why we do not seek outside teachers. This is why we grow our own. <clears throat> okay. That's probably enough. Oh, one last thing. Um, I was thinking about what's Apamana's purpose then? Right? What's our purpose? And, you know, like every organization has like their mission statement. <laughs> often different from their purpose, but the rhetorical framing of it. Um, but we don't have a purpose, we have a complex of purposes. I'm going to tell you what I think they are, and you think of your own mind others. First, to support the contemporary householder practice of Zen meditation. Second, 
to foster spiritual friendships and support. Third, to share the wisdom teachings of the Buddhas and the ancestors. Fourth, to cultivate a healthy community of mutual care, ethical integrity, and liberatory potential. This is a model. Illuminate Zen practice, path, and vow. So provide some illumination for that. And to provide a living model of community for waking up and growing up together, a model clearly needed in the world today. And finally, to convey the Dharma forward, this is our big responsibility, to convey the Dharma forward in our age and to hand it off to the next generation. So, <clears throat> so what is Buddha nature after all? No. It's clearly not a thing, a quality, or even an essence. I guess I would think of it as an unobstructed flow of pure goodness, pure light, pure wisdom. A stream, not an identity, not an event. An owl scooping up a shrew, a tree creaking in a windstorm, an unremarkable sunset, a murmuration of starlings wheeling into the sky. The moment of having nothing to say, heavy traffic, a mom with a stroller entering the park, the friend's face when she tells you she has cancer, the moment in the movie theater when the lights go out, the email you dread sending, the warm light spilling out of a window at twilight. It's a child's Christmas morning, an airplane high above, inscribing white lines on an impossibly blue sky. The fresh smell of grass just mow. It's an unexpected kindness. A photo of a grandchild, a new house being built next door, a misunderstanding that leaves you tossing at night, the blueberry pancakes you're making for a hungry toddler. You see, there's no complexity or philosophical speculation to it. The Buddha himself compared it to a speck of dirt on your fingernail. And so ordinary, so obvious, so easy to overlook in the mad crush of more important matters. So I'm embarrassed, actually, that I have such limited capacities to convey the awesome <coughs> majesty of this extremely rare convergence called a Sangha. But we are all faulty emissaries of the Dharma, enchanted and befuddled by our conditioning, right? Captivated by our turning melodramas, convinced of the rightness of our mistaken views, the urgency of our fleeting impulses and feelings, and that is why we need each other. We help each other recall who we really are, that boundless Buddha heart and mind, streaming fabric of the cosmos and liberated being. Because we prefer our self-centered dream, we need each other. We need these teachings, the light of the Buddha, to awaken. Until then, as Joko said, we are living a substitute life, not our true life. Our challenge is to do the work together, to discover our true life, both as an individual and as a sangha, a living force field that is the expression of the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha here and now, in this time, in this world, where it is most needed. So let's take up this liberating work with joy and delight. And challenges met and struggles resolved, disagreements repaired, with deepening respect and trust in each other, in the path. We are not trying to create a perfect world. This is not Camelot. We are learning how to meet the world and its beings as they are, bringing the light of wisdom and compassion with 
as the last Oxford picture says, gift bestowing hands. <clears throat> we nourish each other and fortify each other in this perfect practice we can only do imperfectly by each other, by the Buddha and the Dharma. The great Zen teacher Maureen Stewart once said, Zazen <clears throat> washes the mind, leaving it fresh and clean. You all have your Zazen mind, so use it. <laughs> and the last thing I want to leave you with is a wonderful poem that uh, was written by Chandler Davis, who was a true polymath. He was a brilliant mathematician, author, poet, educator, activist. He founded the um, Association for Women in Mathematics. Um, he was born in 1926 and he just died September 24th. He wrote this poem in 2014, and it's called Successors. On these ruins left to us, we build our home. The view from my porch includes today's maples and pines that were, and even long-gone long sayets. We tell our stories, which means that I could tell you my father's story, and, and some he'd heard before, my great-grandfather's story. Pass it on. This yard is gently touched, garden and rooftop, by faint, far starlight, and still more gently touched, by cryptic spores almost intangible. More messages come in than we can read. I cherish more than I can understand, but I have fathomed some. Pass it on. Oh, Newborn mice and newborn wrens and newborn of ours, trusting mouths open to be fed. Your trust may not be valid, but yourselves are valid. We in whom you put your faith may let you down, but we are not without faith, for we have faith in you. Pass it on. Lovely. Want to hear it one more time? Okay. <clears throat> I love this book. On these ruins left to us, we build our home. The view from my porch includes today's maples and pines that were, and even long gone signs. We tell our stories, which means that I could tell you my father's story, and some he'd heard before, my great grandfather's story. Pass it on. This yard is gently touched, garden and rooftop, by faint, far starlight, and still more gently touched by cryptic spores almost intangible. <coughs> more messages come in than we can read. I cherish more than I can understand. But I, I have fathomed some. Pass it on. Oh, Newborn mice and newborn wrens and newborn of ours, trusting mouths open to be fed. Your trust may not be valid, but yourselves are valid. We in whom you put your faith may let you down, but we are not without faith, for we have faith in you. Pass it on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.